Last year, Grace Church was very gracious to give me a sabbatical. Uh, I was gone around this time last year in July. Um, and I, it, it was a summer I'll never forget. It was my first ever sabbatical. Uh, we had just gotten through COVID. Um, There's a ton of stuff that had happened uh, in life and in church, and it was a much needed time just to kind of catch my breath and to reconnect with the Lord. And the way I do that is by hiking, getting as far away from other people as possible, um, and uh, just spending time out in the woods with bears and moose. Um, but I remember around this time last year, I won a lottery, uh, in my mind, a once-in-a-lifetime lottery uh, to hike to the top of Half Dome of Yosemite. I've always seen Half Dome. I've always seen pictures of it and postcards, and I didn't even know you can get to the top of it. And my wife gifted me this lottery. She put my name in, and they picked my name. And so I was going to get to hike to the top of Half Dome. Now, I, I've never hiked anything like that before. Um, and, I, and I thought, you know, out of, out of just sheer wisdom to not die, I should probably find out what it would be like. So the day before, I called some friends. Um, they're actually here. There's Luke right there who had done it before. Um, and I thought, you know, this is going to be a great conversation. They're going to rah-rah me and tell me that I can do it. And, um, but the, that's not what the conversation uh, revealed. The, the conversation revealed just how difficult reaching the summit would be. With a steady elevation gain of over 5,000 feet and a total round trip of 15 miles, this was not going to be a walk in the park, pun intended. After hiking uphill over miles of gravelly terrain, climbers come to the cables, the infamous cables. And, and, and for those that have been there, you just say the cables, you immediately know what they're talking about. It's the most intimidating part of the trip. Years of weather, of ice and snow, and hikers going up and down have left the granite stones that lead up to the top of Half Dome polished and smooth and slippery. Uh, people have slid to their deaths off the, the side of that thing. So they put up these cables where you use just your brute upper body strength to pull yourself up 400 feet to the top. And then you stand on top. So as they're telling me all this, I'm thinking, oh, this is crazy. Absolutely not for me. Um, and I think my friend, he sensed my growing hesitation. He switched gears pretty quickly. He's like, hey, once you reach the top, you'll never forget it. You're going to see a view of the park that most people have never seen. You're going to get to experience what it's like to stand on the edge and and see the whole Yosemite Valley and El Capitan on the right. And you get to see the reverse of the tunnel vision that, that nobody gets to see unless they're there. Trust me, it's worth it. It was that promise that the view would be worth it that firmed up my courage to go and to, to register. It was that promise that got me up on the dawn, before dawn, on the big day, it was that promise that I would have this unforgettable view of Yosemite that kept me going with each new obstacle. Every time I slipped on the gravelly trail, every time I saw some wild animal bolt from behind a tree and didn't catch what it was, every time, every time I faced a new fear, a new obstacle, felt the thirst in my throat, felt the, 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 the back aches, felt the muscle aches in my thighs, every time a new obstacle came, it was this promise of what I would see when I got there. That kept me going. And when I finally reached the summit, I can tell you 
their promises just did not do it justice. It, is, it, it was an experience. They, they were right. I, I'd never forget. It's an experience that I still look back on and sometimes can still feel just the, the wind blowing from the top there and the fresh air and just the beauty of the sight of God's creation. Psalm 125 does not give us a lot of context of why or when it was written. It's more like a little memo, right? Just a little post-it note that reminds, of, reminds us of all the great truths that are awaiting God's pilgrims. There are things coming to us as we go through this very difficult journey. The psalmist knows that the journey to the house of God is going to be full of pain. It's going to be an uphill battle. It's going to hurt. You're going to ache. Your legs are going to be tired. You're going to get thirsty. You're going to be thinking about giving up. And yet he wants to give you this memo and remind you of all the great promises of redemption that await the top. What will the summit be like? So with each statement that we find in the psalm, we're given fresh motivation to keep climbing, to keep hiking until we get to the top and do not stop. The first truth that the psalmist gives us speaks about our stability in the Lord. Nations topple, nations cease to exist, countries uh, fail, there's such things as failed states where a country just, its system just does not work and it fails. Economies tank, uh, powerful people fall, but those who trust in the Lord are never shaken. In fact, the psalmist compares them to Mount Zion itself, which cannot be moved but abides forever. While everything else totters, staggers, and sways, Mount Zion can never be moved. It is fixed and steady. And it's in the same way that believers enjoy a steadiness that people cannot have without the Lord. They simply will not have this kind of stability. Because the Lord is a covenant-keeping God, it means he's a God who keeps his promises And he will never forget all the things that he's promised. He will not forget his own people. He will not change his faithful nature toward them. Because all of that is true about our God, we are held firmly. His unshakable stability makes us stable. Now, there's an old song that we sing uh, from time to time here at church called How Firm a Foundation. It captures the idea well. God comforts his people in this song, saying, Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. In this, in that song, and in this psalm that we're studying, stability does not come from God's people themselves. It's not that they made themselves strong or stable, but they're stable because of the Lord in whom they trust, who is stable himself. He never shakes, and because he never shakes, because the Lord cannot be shaken, because the Lord is firm and steady, God's people are firm and steady. They will never be shaken. Now, just think about that for a moment. Think about how knowing the Lord brings stability to life. Though it doesn't always take away the fears that we face, or the consequences of our own sin, or the pain of the trials that we have, God's promises keep us stable through suffering, through hardship. Even something as bad as the prospect of death just simply doesn't have the punch that it used to, does it? I mean, just think of, of it. Just, you know, I've, I've been in a few situations that I thought I was going to die, and, 
And yes, they're terrifying. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to face that. That's, that's a scary situation. But think about what we have in Christ. We have a God who says that even if we die, he's the God who resurrects. We're, we're like a foot fungus that just keeps coming back, right? I mean, you can't kill us. We die, we come back. We face cancer, cancer doesn't keep us in the ground. We come back. God promises to resurrect his people. Imagine the stability that gives to us, that even death itself will not have the final word, that death is not the final chapter because we have a God who is over death, powerful over death, who has promised that death, the last enemy, will be destroyed and we will live forever. That's an amazing promise to us. And that gives stability. What if the plane goes down on the way to a mission trip? What if there's a car accident on the way to the next family vacation? What if that pain in your right side really is truly cancerous? What if that little headache that you have may be the beginnings of the stroke? It's quite possible. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's fearful. But yet, the Lord holds, holds us firmly. If it is the stroke, there will be a day that you will be completely new. If it is cancer, it might kill you. But there will be a day where death itself will give up its dead, give up its victims and spit them out because the Lord who is firm and unshakable holds us fast. He doesn't let us go. Now, how then should we live in light of this unshakable nature? I think being, being given an unshakable stability leads us to one thing, worship, praise, adoration. The author of Hebrews tells us that because we have been given an unshakable kingdom, which he connects with Mount Zion, because we have this unshakable kingdom, we should be grateful and we should offer God acceptable worship with reverence and all. So, so very simply, thanksgiving and absolute mind-blowing praise. Just to be in awe of God, just to walk around and awe of God and what he's done, to be people who are so taken up at the beauty of God and his work, his nature, that we're not underwhelmed, but we're overwhelmed by who God is. People who are not bored by the gospel message, people who are not bored by the redemptive truths, but people who are taken in by them, taken up by them, and are compelled to live this joyful life by them. Now, far too many of us are playing pretend. God has given us unshakability, stability in him. And yet we act as if our entire world is toppling down on top of us. But if you look closely enough, the Lord is holding you. He's the one keeping you together. It's by his word that you are sustained. Those of us that struggle with all these hardships and, and know what it's like to be battered by fear and depression and, and, and mourning, need the healthy dose of a reminder that our God is faithful, he's firm and unshakable, and so are we. It won't take it away, you'll definitely struggle with it still, but just having the reminder that we have an unshakable God who will not let us be shaken keeps us going.
motivates us to keep climbing. Now, according to the psalmist, believers like you are unshakable like Mount Zion. Now, in the next verse, he says, God is like the mountains that surround Mount Zion. Now, if you know anything about the geography of the promised land, we're hopefully putting together an Israel trip in a couple of years. We tried to do it before COVID. COVID killed it. Hopefully, in the next year or two, we're going to try it again. But if you've ever been to Israel, you know that you have Jerusalem, which sits on a little mount on top of the hill, and all around Jerusalem are these mountains. It's an incredibly difficult city to get to on horseback and chariot, so it's not, it's not an easy city to attack. It's not an easy city to siege. It's, it's protected by all these mountains. And the Lord says that he is like those mountains that surround Jerusalem. He's the one that protects them. He's the reason they're stable. He's the reason nothing can touch them. Now, some who read the psalm and read this promise that God surrounds his people and protects them, you might struggle with this idea. Maybe you, like others, have felt the pain of when God doesn't save his people from death. Maybe you're looking at this and being like, well, this didn't save my loved one from the car crash. This didn't save my aunt from the cancer. It didn't save some of those families and teachers that were Christians down in Uvalde who, got, who were victims of the mass shooting. So, so what do we do with this in light of the fact that we still die? If some of us are still dying and still, and still succumbing to all kinds of diseases and cancers and car wrecks and job loss and all these things, how do we reconcile that with the fact that God has promised to be a mountain around his people? Is God truly protecting his people? I think at this point, it's so comforting to remember God's sovereignty. While we may not escape death or hardship, we are absolutely protected from final devastation. You see, what matters most is not what we go through, but where we end up. What matters most is not the middle chapters of the book where all the people are dying, it's the final chapter where all the people that died resurrect and dwell with God. That's what matters the most. God promises, in Romans 8, 28, it's often quoted during times of suffering, it rarely takes away the hardship, I'll say that, but it is a, is a good verse to quote because it's true. It's a good verse to quote because it's faithful. In Romans 8, 28, we find out that all, God, that, all that God does, all things work together for the good who are called according to his purpose. For those who trust God, any hardships you face or suffering in this life ultimately work for both God's good, for your good and God's glory. At the end of the day, you may not know how it's working out for your good, give it time, you eventually will. Especially by the end, by the end in the final chapter. It brings God glory. God being a sovereign God knows that that thing that hurt you, that thing that wounded you, that thing that nearly killed you was coming your way. He's an omniscient God, right? He knows all things past, present, and future. He's also omnipotent, which means that he could have prevented it from happening. The question is then, how does a God who knows all things, how does a God who has powerful to stop all things allow these things still to happen? Unless he knew that it would ultimately be used for your good and his glory and the salvation of many lives. 
He knew Joseph's brothers were gonna sell him into Egypt. He could have stopped Joseph's brothers from selling him to Egypt. But he worked in the midst of it to save many lives and fulfill his purposes. You see, the, the problem is God was around, the God, God was around Joseph like a mountain. He surrounded him. That didn't keep him from all the hardships in life, but what it did do was ensure that everything that happened to Joseph, whether it was exile out of the promised land or being put in prison itself, would work ultimately for his purposes to preserve the line so that we could eventually have Jesus Christ the Messiah. God is sovereign over it all. We have these truths. According to the Bible, death nor life. Yes, you will still die. But even if you die, death nor life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, those in power, height or depth, and nothing else in all creation, including yourself, can separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ. We find out in 1 John 5.18 that even Satan himself cannot touch God's people. Can't touch them. Most powerful, wicked being in all the universe. Can't touch this. Now, all of you that are singing the MC Hammer song in your mind, <laughs> relatively unspiritual people. There you go. <laughs> but 1 John 5.18 is true. Satan can't touch you. Why? Because Christ surrounds you. It's Christ before you, Christ with you, and Christ all around you. And when all is said and done, death itself, the final enemy, will be destroyed and God's people will be free from its grasp forever. God surrounds his people like the mountains surround Jerusalem. According to the promise of Zechariah, which takes up the same imagery, he's a Lord who surrounds his people as a wall of fire. All of you praying for hedges of protection, God's like, get rid of the hedges. I'm a wall of fire. I pray for a wall of fire around you, not a hedge of protection. You know? Hedges can be cut, yeah. But he is the God who's before us and the God who's around us, the God who surrounds us. He's the good shepherd who guards and keeps his people safe from their enemies forever. Those are amazing truths, aren't they? They should inspire our hearts to, to thanksgiving and praise. The Lord keeps us and secures us and makes us unshakable and at the same time surrounds us for our good and his glory. So in the first two verses, we have that. It speaks of present realities, things that are true right now. God's people are at this moment like Mount Zion, which means that we're not waiting to be made unshakable. We are unshakable at this moment. Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken. And then we have the also present reality that God secures his people by surrounding them. Now the psalmist looks ahead to the future. He, looks, he goes from looking at present realities to future promises. He writes this, For the scepter of the wicked shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Now the psalmist acknowledges that Zion-bound pilgrims live in a land where wicked people reign. Wicked people are in power. They, and, and therefore, they are vulnerable to oppression and persecution. This is a key element of living in life in a fallen world. We're just simply prey to all the predators that are out there. There are wicked people in power, and their scepter is over the land. History is filled with its pharaohs, its Sennacheribs, its Nebuchadnezzars, its Caesars, its Herods, and its Hitlers. 
is filled with all kinds of people like that. Even the briefest survey of history will show you that history is violent. History is made by violent men. History is made by corrupt men. History is made by aggressive, angry people, oftentimes. Our world has fallen, and yet the psalmist sees a day when evil rulers will no longer plague God's people. No more. No more wicked scepters. Their scepter, the symbol of their power, will no longer rest on the land allotted to the righteous. Now, according to the psalm, what that means is evil rulers are a momentary affliction that are here today but will be gone tomorrow when the kingdom of God is restored. When the scepter of the wicked is removed, the land will be free from its wickedness. Now, we think in, in our Christian perspective, we tend to over, uh, underemphasize the land promise, right? We, the land promise is a huge focus in the Old Testament, but it kind of disappears in the New Testament. We don't know what to do with that. Oftentimes, we have made God's promises overly spiritual, which they are spiritual. God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heaven. But when he promised Abraham a blessed land in which God's people would experience blessing and dwell with him, he meant a land. It's not some metaphorical thing. There is actually a true down-to-earth kind of land coming that you will walk on and live in and be blessed. It's coming. It's a physical promise. So I think what the psalmist is doing is he's looking at the promise made to Abraham of this blessed land, and he's taking it up and he's saying, when that land comes, when that land of blessing comes and the land of promise comes, it will be free from every wicked ruler. Wickedness will no longer reign over it. It's a new creation with one king and a good king whose scepter is righteousness, not wickedness. Wickedness will be done away with. Blessing and, and, and glory will come in that land and the wicked will be over. This blessed land that has been freed from the tyranny of wicked comes by God's faithfulness alone. I want you to see that this psalmist looks at a land that's been freed from the wicked scepter, but it has not been freed because of the ingenuity of God's people to revolt. It doesn't come because God's people throw a revolution and throw off their bonds. It doesn't come because God's people gather together and riot against him. Wicked rulers will not come to the end because we fight them. Wicked rulers will be toppled because God is sovereign king. In Isaiah 14, God judges Bab Babylon, which is the symbol, the epitome of sinful nations. It's it's virtually the symbol for every symbol nation out there. It's the climax of all the evil in the world. In Isaiah 14, God judges Babylon. Now, after he strikes, God's people at that point are vulnerable. They're suffering. They're oppressed. They're persecuted because of their faith. They are people that are uh, maligned by this evil people group that are, are, are setting up their empire over them. Then God strikes. Babylon falls. He saves his people. And here's what the people say. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger and unrelenting persecution. Now what will be the result? The whole earth is at rest and quiet. 
the Lord will strike. He will bring down the wicked empires. He will take out wicked kings. He will demolish wicked presidents, wicked senators, wicked Republicans, wicked Democrats. He will take out evil parliaments. And when he does, the world will rest because the wicked will no longer have a scepter in the land with God's people. Now I just, I think of this and I think, man, this is good news. There's nothing I can do to topple anyone out of power right now. Of all the leaders in the world, I am absolutely hopeless in bringing them down. There's nothing I can do. But God can. And here's the better part. God will. I might suffer, or my friends in China might suffer. My friends in Colombia may have to pay, pay bribes to police at the moment. I mean, that, that happened this week where our pastor got stopped and was basically threatened with a ticket if he didn't pay a bribe. All of those things, all these little pesky little persecutions that we deal with because of these wicked rulers, all that's gonna come to, the, to an end. He's gonna bring rest to his people. Now, here's what that means. You will not suffer forever. Your suffering is seasonal, meaning that there will be an end to the season. I love the way that Spurgeon put it. He says, the saints abide forever, but their troubles will not. How great is that? I mean, that's the coolest promise that we have. We're gonna last forever and ever and ever, but all the trials, all the troubles, all the depression, all the oppression, the persecution, the struggles, the marginality, all of that comes to an end. We outlast our suffering. Why? Because we're unshakable. Why? Because the Lord surrounds his people like the mountains surround Jerusalem. We simply cannot be touched. And at the moment that God is allowing us to be suffering, at the moment when God's allowing us to be pushed around in the margins, it's all for his sovereign purposes and for the day when we will realize that it was not us that brought wickedness to an end. It was not us that restored the world. It was not us that delivered people from wicked governments. It was the Lord, the true king. And all God's people and all God's enemies will say, the Lord is God. In the end, when everything comes, God will be seen as the sovereign king above all kings, good or bad. Now, there's one important outcome that comes from the Lord's delivering work. And we like to think of that. We like to say amen and, and hallelujah when we think about God delivering his people from evil rulers. We like that. But one of the outcomes from being saved from evil governments, evil rulers, evil, evil societies, is that God also saves us from the evil ourselves, that the evil that's inside of ourselves. In a world where entire cultures and their leaders are enticing people to sin, it's difficult for the righteous to remain faithful. In Matthew 24, 12, Jesus deliberately connects increased lawlessness in the world and he correlates it with believers' love growing cold. Believers love growing cold. I think we just have, you want examples of this? Just look at the past couple of years. Just look at the past couple of years. Our culture has grown increasingly sinful, increasingly lawless. Now what's happened because of that? 
what God's people have participated in doing wrong. Just like the psalm says that if the scepter of the wickedness reigns in the land, God's people might do wrong. They might go away, might stray away into the wrong. Well, how did we do this? Well, some of us participate in the sin, and some of us angrily revolt in a way that's ungodly. I mean, you see this in Twitter, right, all the time. You see somebody post, oh, praise God for the LGBTQ community, and then you get others that are calling the LGBTQ community ungodly names in a way that wouldn't honor Christ. Both are participating in the sin because of the lawlessness in the land. Here's the thing. Bad times bring out the worst in God's people, oftentimes. Whether by our own participation, we we join in with the sin, or we fight the sin and the sinner in a way that doesn't honor God and bring him glory, and therefore do sin ourselves. But God says that when the time comes, and he breaks the scepter of the wicked, God's people will be saved from the wickedness within. How great is that? God doesn't just save us from Pharaoh. God saves us from our own capacity to build golden calves. He doesn't just bring us out of Egypt. He brings Egypt out of us. How, how incredible is that when, when the Lord strikes and he brings down the wicked scepter and the land is free, when the dust settles and the world is quiet and at rest, God's people are no longer inclined to rebel. We will no longer want to participate in sin and neither will we want to fight people in a way that is ungodly and anti-gospel, anti-Christ-like. What a great hope that is, huh? It's this forthcoming deliverance from evil, evil both from those outside of us and around us and the evil that lingers inside of us. When God saves us from evil societies and evil governments and evil rulers, he will also save us from the evil that rests in us. And we will be able to live righteous lives. Now we come to truth number four. In verse four, we come to the first actual prayer. Like so far, everything has been indicative. He's just been saying statements, right? Telling us truths. Now he actually prays something, right? It's the first actual petition in this prayer. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Now it may seem strange to see a verse in the Bible that says God does good to good people. For those of you that that say God helps those that help themselves and God does good to people who do good themselves, well, here's your verse, right? Except we remember that this verse is in the context of all of Scripture. You see, if you were to turn just a couple chapters over, we're in Psalm 125, just five chapters over in Psalm 130, we have a problem now. Psalm 130, verse 3, asks this question. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Do you hear the implicit truth of that question? Okay, you get Psalm 125 promising that God will do good to those who are good. But then you get Psalm 130, verse 3, just a couple chapters later, and the psalmist says, "Uh, if you truly tracked sin, there's no one good. Who could ever stand? If you should mark iniquities, who could stand? And the answer is, no one. 
So in this same psalm, the very same book that the psalm prays that God will do good to those who do good, he also acknowledges that if God were to count, count our sin, there's no one found good. No one is upright. All of us have bent hearts. We're all crooked. We're all wicked and sinful people. So in that light, I think this promise that this prayer that God would do good to those who are good should be read in the context of grace that is always there when it comes to talking about goodness and uprightness. We know that God's people are upright and good. Why? Only because God does not count their sins. Be careful of getting too big of a head while reading about this text. God, do good to those who are good, then do good to me. That's not a statement of entitlement. You have not earned that title of the one who does good. You are wicked and broken. And it's only because the Lord has considered you, counted you, looks at you in his son as righteous that you're now declared good. That's it. That's the point of justification. The point of justification is that God in his grace, because his son died on the cross for your sin and poured out justice on your rebellion, because he paid the bill for that, you are now forgiven. So now he chooses not to look at your sin, but to look at the righteousness of his son and consider it, think of it as if it was your own. That's the point of justification. You're not good. Jesus is good. And because you're in Jesus, God declares you good. And because he declares you good, because you're in the good Jesus, he promises to do good to you. Nothing but grace. Absolutely nothing but grace. It was the good son of God that brought us the goodness of God. Just think of the beauty of this. You were, just take Ephesians 2. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, raised you together with Christ, and he seated you with him in the heavenly places. Everything in Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of grace in kindness toward us. How? In Christ Jesus. Here's the good news. If you believe in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, you've put your, your hopes and you have built your foundation in Christ alone and in nothing else, you have received and are going to receive the promise of Psalm 125 that God will do good to you. But when you read that, I warn you against pride. It's not because you are good. It's because he's good. It's not because you're enough and what you've done is enough. It's not because your works have somehow, somehow tipped the scale of God's righteous judgment where your goodness has now outweighed the bad. That's, you know, when we believe that, that's called bribery, right? When we do enough good things so that we can get away with a few bad things, that's, that's bribery. So when we think about God holding the scale, weighing out good things and bad things, and, and he counts all the things we've done for him, and, he, and it outweighs some of the bad, that's bribery. You can't bribe God. God doesn't deal that way. 
When you sit on his scale, the scale reveals you are absolutely wicked, evil, fallen people, like snakes. Romans 3, the venom of asp under your lips, ready to kill and hurt and maim, to overpower and to oppress. That's us. But in Christ, we become something new. He wipes off the bad side of the scale because Jesus died for it. He says, well, since I'm not counting your sins anymore, might as well consider you good. And what does God do for good people? He gives them good things. We will always be debtors and never those who deserve. We will always be debtors. When you accept that first wine goblet of the new kingdom and the new creation and you're sitting at the table with Jesus, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, when you're sitting at that table and you see the meal laid out before you, the best meal with all the rich meat and steaks that the kingdom can offer, as Isaiah 25 says, meat full of marrow. I mean, this is, this is juicy fat steaks. And well-aged wine, wine that's been aging since the creation began, made by Jesus himself. When Jesus rises from the table and hands you that wine goblet and you take that first sip, none of us will think that we've earned that. Not one of us. That goodness and that grace only comes from the overflow of the goodness of God. Always debtors and never those who deserve. Now with this good news of this coming goodness of God, we also have a warning. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Those who quit on the trail up the mountain never get to see the summit. I, I was so surprised. You know, first off, with the half dome, you have to put in the slaughtery. They only allow so many people per day. Um, if you're there on vacation, you only got a, got a few chances, right? And so these people put their names in, and I'm walking up the trail with them. I catch up with them, and one lady goes, I quit. And she just turned around. I was like, we have a mile left to go. She just turned around, and, and, and man, when I got to the top, I was like, she missed it. She missed out on this. I'm not sure she would agree with me, but, but it was gorgeous up there. My friends, there are, gods, there are some, of, uh, some of us that will do the same. God's people pre- persevere, and they're preserved by the Lord. But there are some among our number in, in the church that will not persevere and will fall away. In fact, Scripture often talks about how the majority of those who claim to be God's people will. This language of being led away carries this image of exile, right? Just like Israel was led away out of the promised land and into captivity. So also there's a final exile coming where idolatrous, unrepentant people, people who love their sin more than they love God, people who constantly turn aside to their sin and fail to repent, There's an exile coming where they'll be taken out of the land, led out into eternal captivity. In the end, God will drive out every cursed and sinful thing and make a new world. So I think in the joy of hearing all of this 
good news, God's goodness that awaits his people at the top of the mountain, there's also a warning. Do not go off the trail. Don't turn aside. Don't turn back. There's an urgency, a compelling urgency to repent from sin, even the smallest sin, when we see it, to, to turn away from it and to, to trust in God's grace to defeat sin, to, to walk by the Spirit, by obeying Him. There's, a, there's an urgency to it because those who don't repent will be exiled from this good summit, this good land that He has just described. My friends, as a church, I just want to remind you, there's there's all kinds of temptations every day for you to turn aside. All kinds of, of obstacles and sin and lust and all these things, power mongering, politics, wealth, your own opinions, your own desires, all those things waiting to lure you away. And it's at that moment that Psalm 125 says, remember the summit. Remember what's coming. Remember that you're going to have an unforgettable view. Remember that there's a land free from wicked rulers. Remember that the Lord surrounds his people. Remember that God's people are unshakable Mount Zion. And keep walking. That's a simple application. (laughs) What do you do with a text like this? Well, You wake up on Monday and you keep pressing. Monday you're going to wake up and immediately headlines are going to come and all these different things are going to bombard you. My friends, Psalm 125, very simple application. Keep going. Keep going. It's going to be uphill. It's going to be gravelly. You're going to slide. You're going to get new busted knees, new scraped ankles. You're going to get all kinds of stuff. You're going to get bruised and bloodied this week. You're going to be sweatier next weekend than you were this weekend. Your back is going to hurt more. You're going to be more thirsty. Your legs are going to feel like they're going to give out. Keep going. Remember the summit. You're going to have an unforgettable view that no one else will be able to see unless they're there. Keep going. Now the psalm ends with an anticipation of shalom. There's just few words in the Bible that really need translation, and shalom is one of those. You just hear it, and you suddenly go into relax mode, like shalom. You know, I would. I loved visiting in Israel because people would walk by, and they're like shalom. I'm like, oh wow, that wow, that just <laughs> that just hits. You know, it's just a relaxing word just to hear, especially when it's a deep voiced Jew saying it to you. You know, um, but there's there's few words that need translation, and shalom is one of those. But here's what it means: it means peace. Peace be upon Israel. The air at the top of the summit, according to Psalm 125, is perfect, pure peace. We have this peace now, but there's also a fuller realization of shalom that's still to come. God's people will flourish and thrive without the fear of death. We're going to thrive without the fear of ever ever being broken again. It's this promise that's come to us in Jesus Christ. We, like this psalmist, trust in the Lord, and therefore we, like Israel, receive all the goodness of these promises, the, the shalom that our Savior purchased on the cross, the shalom that his resurrection has given us a foretaste of, we have it now. 
and yet more's to come. Paul calls us who boast in Jesus, not in ourselves, not in our righteousness, not in our goodness, not in our wealth, not in our independency. Paul calls us who boast in Christ the Israel of God who received true shalom. How does that feel to you? Just thinking about that. You're the Israel of God who has the shalom from God himself to flourish and thrive. So my friends, we we come to the end of Psalm 125. And this Sunday you may be massaging your aching feet. You may have blisters from all the little trips. You may have some bruised toes, jammed toes, broken toes. Maybe you've got a scraped kneecap. And at this moment, as you're sitting and you're, you're contemplating whether it's time to turn back or whether you should keep going, just listen to the psalmist's description of what the summit is like. And keep hiking. Let's pray. Father God, we know that your people will make it to the top, not because of their own strength, but because of you who keep your people. And Lord, you will bring them home. So, Father, today we thank you for Psalm 125, uh, Lord, and its uh, amazing view of the summit. We thank you for a preview of what's to come so that we can keep going in the hardship here and now. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.